Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, the weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Notes from New York on Christ and Culture, Transformed Nonconformity. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, August 21st, 2011. Two weeks ago, my wife and I traveled to New York for my nephew's wedding. After the wedding, we spent a week in that great city hiking, biking, and going to shows. In some ways, our first day was the best day, because that day we saw the Harlem Gospel Choir at the B.B. King Blues Club right off of Times Square. Yes, we were at Ground Zero in Gotham, but the choir's music was ministry and not just entertainment. These believers were living very much in the world, but were proclaiming an otherworldly message, just like Paul commends to us in this week's epistle, Romans 12, 1 and 2. That was on Sunday. Monday, we walked 10 miles down Broadway and across the Brooklyn Bridge, which took us past still more believers bearing witness in the secular city. Trinity Episcopal Church at the intersection of Broadway and Wall Street, St. Patrick's Catholic Church on East 51st Street, and Fifth Avenue Presbyterian where friends of ours attended. Biking around the 32-mile Greenway took us near the interdenominational Riverside Church, an Abyssinian Baptist Church way up in Harlem, founded in 1808 as the first black church in the city. On Monday night, we saw Rock of Ages, a musical based upon rock hits from the 1980s. We loved the magic of live music, dancing, singing, lighting, costume design, and technical effects. But the raunchy humor made us uneasy. After the show, I joked to my wife, now I know why the believers in Rome debated whether to attend the blood games in the amphitheater. In the epistle for this week, Paul calls the believers in Rome to be transformed by God rather than conformed to the world. That's not easy because of the tension between two truths that we should never relinquish. On the one hand, God created the world as very good. We experience creation goodness every day, whether in a Broadway musical, the beauty of a sunset, or the pleasure of a meal with friends. God loves this good world, and so should we. We rightly embrace the world and should never abandon it. But the world is not only loved, but lost. After the original goodness came original sin, alienation, and a fall. We experience this every day, too, in the world at large, like the famine in Somalia and in our own hearts with what Augustine described in his Confessions as the bewildering variety of desires tugging at the will. Believers are thus wary of the waves of the world, whether in raunchy humor on Broadway, greed on Wall Street, or power-mongering in Washington. One of my favorite sermons captures this ambivalence. It's by Martin Luther King from the book Strength to Love. The sermon is based on the epistle for this week, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, 
but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. With typical eloquence and brilliance, King captures the essence of this text in just two words that I have always loved, transformed nonconformity. King observes how the pressures for cultural conformity to condition our minds and feet to move to the rhythmic drumbeat of the status quo are immense. Nevertheless, followers of Jesus have a higher loyalty than conformity to respectability. Living in time and for eternity, Christians need to discover ways to live very much in the world, but not of the world. We should never abandon the world, but we should never assimilate to it. We must make history, says King, and not be shaped by history. Sometimes we forget that the world has fallen and that God calls us to be what First Peter calls strangers and aliens in this world. When we forget this reality, we can conform and assimilate to culture. But at other times, we forget that the world is ultimately very good, Genesis 1.31. And so we separate from and condemn the world as irredeemably evil. We somehow need to steer a middle course between these two extremes. We should love and engage the world without separating ourselves from it or allowing ourselves to be uncritically integrated into it. Most people, says King, are thermometers that record or register the temperature of majority opinion, not thermostats that transform and regulate the temperature of society. In fact, social scientists tell us, for example, that believers divorce at the same rate as the general population. We watch the same films and television shows. We read the same books. We give the same percentage of our income to charity as others. Our teenagers have premarital sex at about the same rate as other kids, and on it goes. The church, King reminds us, has defended slavery and racial discrimination, wars and economic exploitation. We participated in the Holocaust. We swallow propaganda, hook, line, and sinker. For example, we believe that sexual pleasure should be unlimited, that politics is the most important news, that poverty rather than wealth is the worst thing that could ever happen to a person, that a risky investment provides so-called security, that physical health is my right, and that whatever is technologically possible is scientifically imperative. Of course, nonconformity by itself is nothing special. Here in California, where I live, nonconformists are everywhere. They ride funny bikes, experiment with alternate energy, eat organic foods, dress down instead of up, and flaunt what they think is an independent spirit, but which often is merely a different type of social conformity. Sometimes, says King, nonconformity is little more than exhibitionism. In contrast, the nonconformity that Paul describes in Romans 12 has a specific direction, which is Christ-likeness through a renewed mind. The French sociologist Jacques Ellul, 1912 to 1994, 
encouraged Christians to move from being what he called negatively maladjusted to the world to being positively maladjusted. King says something similar in his sermon. Quote, There are some things in our world to which men of goodwill must be maladjusted. I confess that I never intend to become adjusted to the evils of segregation and the crippling effects of discrimination, to the moral degeneracy of religious bigotry and the corroding effects of narrow sectarianism, to economic conditions that deprive men of work and food, and to the insanities of militarism and the self-defeating effects of physical violence. End quote. Christian nonconformity, in other words, has a specific direction. Hope for our world rests in creatively and positively maladjusted believers, says King. This week's Old Testament reading from Exodus 1.8-2.10 provides an example of nonconformity in relation to the powers of this world, in contrast to conformity to God's redemptive purposes. The Israelites were in Egyptian bondage, increasing in number and power, when Pharaoh gave the order for infanticide to, de to terminate all the male Hebrew births. But the midwives defied the state authorities because, says this text, they feared God rather than Pharaoh, Exodus 1.17. Later, when asked what had happened, they covered up their civil disobedience by lying. Nonconformity isn't easy. King, who won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1964, paid the ultimate price when James Earl Ray assassinated him as he stood on the balcony of a Memphis hotel. When I suggested King's sermon to a church small group 15 years ago, one couple took a cursory look at what King had to say judged that they had no interest in his message, and then quit the group. But Paul is clear about the general direction of the journey with Jesus. In the words of Martin Luther King, transformed nonconformity. For books this week, I review Gary Wills. Augustine's Confessions, a Biography, Princeton, Princeton University Press, 2011, 166 pages. This is a book about a book, one of the first in a series of 18 biographies of great religious books by Princeton University Press. It's called The Lives of Great Religious Books. It's a series of short volumes that recount the complex and fascinating histories of important religious texts from around the world. This volume, the volumes pair leading experts with classic texts and are written for a general audience. Gary Wills, a Pulitzer Prize winner for his book on Abraham Lincoln, is a classics professor from Northwestern University who has written 40 books including five previous volumes on Augustine. Wills begins with book production in late antiquity. Augustine would have dictated to scribes who used reed pens to write on long scrolls. 
This was an expensive, labor-intensive, and time-consuming production process. But nevertheless, no obstacle for Augustine to write five million words in his lifetime. He wrote his Confessions in the year 397, at the age of 43, ten years after his baptism by Ambrose. The book pioneered a new genre with no parallel in classical or Christian literature. Often and wrongly considered an autobiography, the book is really a long prayer to an audience of one, God himself. It's also a sustained effort of introspection, for in Augustine, knowledge of the self is the way to knowledge of God. He writes, You were waiting within me, while I went outside me. Along the way, Wills tackles the questions surrounding the historicity of Augustine's storytelling, his move from Tagast to Carthage and then to Rome, his struggle with what Wills calls sexual addiction and his consequent famous conversion, the nature of memory, the questions that surround books 10 to 13 and whether they were added later, in what Augustine calls the bewildering variety of desires tugging at the will. In a final chapter, Wills reviews the book's so-called afterlife, that is, its reception among readers over the last 1,500 years, from early critics like Pelagius to modern people like Nietzsche, Kierkegaard, Freud, and even the postmodernists. If you can't read the Confessions, this is an excellent overview by a leading expert. And we can all imitate Augustine as best we can. Each person has himself at hand to study, wrote Augustine, to observe and ponder and report what he finds. The author is Gary Wills. The title, Augustine's Confessions, a biography, Princeton University Press. For film this week, I review another movie from China. The title of the film is Unknown Pleasures from the year 2002. Bin Bin and Zhao Ji are 19-year-old best friends who are deeply alienated from society. It's hard to blame them. Chinese filmmaker Zhang Qijia situates this movie in the remote Shangzi province near Mongolia. Drab browns and grays are the color of communist China in this dreary textile town. People live in a dilapidated apartments. Both of the boys chain smoke, are broke, unemployed, and in relationships with women that are destined to go nowhere. Bin Bin loves a girl who has passed her exams and is off to study international finance at the university. Zhao is infatuated with Kiao, a promo poster girl for Mongolian King Liquor. Both boys fail at sexual opportunity. Bin Bin can't even join the army to be what he calls a Beijing soldier because a routine test reveals that he has hepatitis. And then, in the final minutes, a last act of desperation also fails. After which Zhao's motorcycle runs out of gas on a rainy highway. 
All of the pleasures of life, both real and imagined, are truly unknown to these two kids. The movie is in Mandarin with English subtitles. Again, the title of the film, Unknown Pleasures, from the year 2002. For poetry this week, we've actually posted a prayer. It's called the Pilgrim's Prayer. It's from Codex Calixtinus, a 12th century illuminated manuscript. This illuminated manuscript was an anthology of background detail and advice for pilgrims who were following the way of St. James to the shrine of the Apostle St. James, located in the Cathedral of Santiago de Compostela in northern Spain. The collection includes sermons, reports of miracles, and liturgical texts associated with St. James. In it are also found descriptions of the El Camino, or the Way, works of art to be seen along the way, and the customs of local people. The Pilgrim's Prayer from the 12th century illuminated manuscripts, Codex Calixtinus. God, you called your servant Abraham from Ur in Chaldea, watching over him in all his wanderings, and guided the Hebrew people as they crossed the desert. Guard these your children who, for the love of your name, make a pilgrimage to Compostela. Be their companion on the way, their guide at the crossroads, their strength in weariness their defense in dangers, their shelter on the path, their shade in the heat, their light in the darkness, their comfort in discouragement, in the firmness of their intentions, that through your guidance they may arrive safely at the end of their journey and, enriched with grace and virtue, may return, return to their homes filled with salutary and lasting joy. The Pilgrim's Prayer. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, August 21st, 2011. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.